But the word of God works, whatever the age. We'd like to turn to Mark chapter 2, please, uh, verses 13 to 22. We're working our way through the Gospel of Mark on Sunday mornings, as many of you will realize and, and remember. And Mark reveals to us how Jesus came to bring the kingdom of God to the world and to invite and invite people into a life where they live under the rule of God and the blessing of God forever. Sounds pretty good to me. We saw last week how after Jesus had been throughout all the towns of Galilee, the whole region, he returned to Capernaum, and uh, which is, seems to be where, he was, where his home was. And it was there that we saw Jesus heal the paralyzed man who was let down through a hole in the roof. Remember Simon handled that? And then we continue the story from there. And so the crowd are there, and they've watched people. This guy being healed and sins forgiven. Crowds of people kind of spill out onto the street, probably, and... uh, It continues, verse 13. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, what, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came to call, not call the righteous, but sinners. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why, why did John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it the new from the old, and the worst tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for new wineskins. So once again, I have uh, three points to hang my comments on. And um, I was talking to my son this week. And he, he phoned me up, he's on staff of the, what is now All Nations Church Bedford, and he's preaching three times, the same sermon, three times this morning, which, which is uh, preaching it, then moved to another site, preach it again, then back to the other site to preach for the second service. I thought, praise God I'm not there, that's what I thought. That sounds way too much. And then um, he said, we're preaching through Mark. I said, that's interesting, so are we. And he's preaching through some verses in Mark chapter 1 that I preached on a few weeks ago. And I said, oh, that's all right, son, I'll send you my sermon. He said, no, thanks, Dad. It's really all right. I'll manage on my own. Okay. Felt rejected, really. Um, I didn't. I'm all right, honest. I have three points. What, what I said to him was, I have three points. He said, I don't do it that way, Dad. I don't get three points. I just do it. Okay. 
Very interesting. Different styles, and I guess my style has developed over many, many years of preaching. Anyway, I have these three points. Who is invited? The offense of the gospel and breaking the mold. So who's invited? I worry sometimes, it's not true here, but sometimes the message that seems to come from the church, especially in our Western culture, is that Jesus came for the good people. In fact, I've even heard Christians say when they meet a really nice, well-adjusted person, they're so nice, they really ought to be a Christian. Seriously, I've heard that a number of times. But who does Jesus invite to follow him? The nice people? The well-adjusted people? The well-behaved people? The crowds are walking. Jesus, he's teaching them on the way. Jesus, as he often did, he he demonstrates his kingdom with action. Sorry, his teaching with action. Sometimes the action is to, to heal the sick or set someone free from a demon. But sometimes he demonstrates what he is teaching by mixing with the broken people of his society. On this occasion, he spots a guy called Levi sitting in a booth collecting taxes for the Romans. Now the Romans had occupied Palestine for years and years, and and the Jews hated the Romans. Levi, he was a Jew, but he would have been hated by the Jews because they, they, they would have rejected him. He was a corrupt collaborator as far as they were concerned. He was classed as a, a sinner, a tax collector. Any tax collectors in the room? <laughs> Can't have any fun with that then. Um, So why would, why would Jesus invite this corrupt tax collector to follow him? So wasn't a, a nice guy. This, this guy, he, he'd be considered by the whole community a sinner. The word sin by the means simply is an archery term and it simply means to miss the mark. Uh, so if you fire an arrow, I always fancy having a go at this, to be honest, archery. Um, I don't know why, it's just my sort of thing. You fire an arrow... And if you miss the target, you said to have sinned. It's what the word means. And when applied to people, to be a sinner means to be not good enough, not up to standards, not fulfilling our potential, not living under the rule of God, missing God's best for us. No matter how hard we try. So as far as this community is concerned, Levi was a sinner. Yeah. Yet Jesus invites this man to follow him. And it seems from our reading that Levi didn't hesitate. He didn't go, well, I don't know. He didn't negotiate. He just says, he rose up and followed Jesus. Now it could be, it could be at that point, he gets up, he starts to follow Jesus. It could be that he invites Jesus round for a meal and then says to his tax collector friends, hey, come and, come and let's have a party with this guy Jesus. It could be he did that. All these rejected people of society, they're my friends. It could be that. All these people who are not up to standard. Come and have a party. Jesus is coming. Or it could be, I read it, I was trying to work it out, it could be that Jesus invites Levi and his friends to his own house. He says, come and have a meal at my house. Don't just follow me, but come right into where I live. 
Come into my life. Come, come where I am. And we read that they're all reclining there at table, having a great meal. Bit of a party. Bit of a good time. Jesus settles down into it. Now the religious people that they were horrified, appalled. What's he think he's doing? Why would he eat with those people? Why is he spending time with them? When Jesus hears the question, he says, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. These are the people I came for. These are the ones. I'm at home here. That's what he's saying. I want to be with you. I want to be with where you are. I want you to be where I am. It's hard for us to really appreciate how shocking it was when Jesus said, I've come to call sinners, but uh, to, to sinners. I, I've come for sinners. I haven't come for the righteous. That's, that's shocking, and it's difficult for us to understand because it cuts right to the heart of the religion of the day. The Jews lived under a system of obedience to the law of God. The law of God was good. And obedience to that law shaped their society. It made their society work. They had religious rituals, set times for prayer, special fasting days, special feast days. Hallelujah. In, in, a, in a church in Mount Kings, which is four churches ago in the 80s, I suddenly had this, that we used to have days of prayer and fasting. When we had our building, God gave us a building, and we used to gather. We'd stay and, and stay then for about five hours after, not eating, just worshipping together, hearing God, praying. That was great. But then I had a revelation. Let's have praise and feasting days. Hallelujah. Always more attend. People came to these, right? And, and we'd, we'd have our, our, our meeting in the morning, it'd be great. And then people would bring food and we'd eat and we'd celebrate and we'd have testimonies and all sorts of amazing things and people would sing us solos. And we just had a, a really great time in the presence of God for about five hours after the meeting. Great fun. And I promise you, when God gives us a building, we'll have a praise and feasting day. Do you fancy that? That'd make it pray harder for a building then. We're still processing this one. It's, lots of, it's a big thing, this building in front of us. We're processing that. Just keep asking God to provide, to open the doors, to have the right people to give us the money, and all of that. But the words buildings, remember. So we're asking God for buildings. And let's have lots of praise and feasting Sundays. Yes. I digressed, didn't I? These religious rituals they all had, these special feast days, special fasting days, undergirded all the time with these animal sacrifices done by the priests on behalf of the people for forgiveness of sin. That's great. The problem was, of course, this religious system produced a dominus culture. It brought division. Those who were very devout and were sticklers as to keeping the details of the law, such as Sabbath keeping, they, they became so easily judgmental and condemning of others who struggled with such disciplines of life. Isn't it funny how we judge people through our own eyes? If you're really, you know, if you've got, if you're a very tidy person, you, any tidy people in the room? 
not many, my goodness, that's worrying. <laughs> I would say jeans, tidy-ish. Um, right, how, how many people like to have a really well-manicured garden and you're on top of your garden? Anybody? Wow, that's worrying. I, I, I'm, I'm trying to set you Those people, the people who find those sort of things a joy and easy and you're well-ordered and everything's in its place, you view other people who are untidy through that through that mindset and you find yourself judging them and saying they would be better if they were tidier do you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> now I I used to work with a guy called Tony Villiers he, he leads another church in Milton Keynes now and uh, for years we worked together and we went off to a, a, a leaders training day and they did uh, some um, some video show us some video of of styles of of running an office and uh, you had the guy who had his his desk which was totally clear and everything in its place and that was Tony okay and he looked at it and said yeah and then you had the other guy with his desk that's a total mess mountains of paper nothing ordered nothing filed just chaos that's me Okay, and uh, there's Tony there going, ha. And the guy who's leading it said, "Now, which one of those are most efficient?" And and Tony was just going, "Well, of course, of course." And he said, "Actually, it has nothing to. They're both equally efficient because they're operating in who they are." You try and put tidiness on someone who doesn't hasn't got that order, it becomes really difficult. Why am I saying that? Because when you have a legalistic system, a legalistic law-keeping system that you have to tick all the boxes and pray at set times every day, for those who love order and discipline, that ticks your boxes. That's it. It's all about keeping the rules. It's all about being ordered. Right? The problem is, most of you don't seem, very few hands went up when I talked about, how many of you seem to survive well in disorder? More hands have gone up, you see. I'm not advocating one or the other. All I'm saying is, for those who struggle with discipline and order, a legalistic framework becomes such a challenge. It becomes a, a, a burden on top of you. It becomes something you're always trying to achieve and failing. And that's what the law does. It, it, it makes you a failure. Because it doesn't matter how good you were at being ordered, you always missed it. That's why they had to have the animal sacrifices. You could never please God, you could never be good enough. And some people seem to be better at it than others, but all, all the people missed. That's what legalism does. It separates rather than unifies. You only have to look at church history to see how the poorest and most broken of society haven't always been invited or accepted by the church. William Booth, who's a bit of a hero of mine, founder of the Salvation Army, offended the established church of the day many times by seeking to bring the poorest and most broken of his day into church services. And the religious people were offended. And of course, being William Booth, he didn't have them sit at the back. He had them come and fill the front row, or the front two rows. And he was asked to take them out. Sorry, they're offensive to us. 
and eventually, and, and the only reason the Salvation Army started was because the church would not receive the poor and the needy people that he was bringing to Jesus. And so he had to start his own thing. Didn't set out to start a movement, it came out of the church being unwilling to receive people who are less than up to par, who are less than tick the right boxes. That's the problem with legalism. And you know what, the church, we're not legalistic, are we? And yet, and yet, we judge people all the time through the prism of our own gifting, our own experience, our, our own history. And we need to be very, very careful with that. One of of William Booth's famous quotes is this, go for souls and go for the worst. Brilliant. Go for souls and go for the worst. I love it. Something gets real, just excites me. Just say, go for the worst. Let's let's take all of the people that nobody wants because Jesus came for them. That's what the heart of the gospel is. But my, I, I put the, I'm using the ESV at the moment, English Standard Version. I, they've messed around with the NIV. They've redone some stuff and I don't like it much, but the ESV's great. And I've just been using it and I put it on the screen. And I, you know what really excites me about this? If you turn in your Bible, you don't have to do it, but I'll do it for you. If you turn to Matthew chapter 1, this just made me chuckle. Beginning of the New Testament, written by Matthew. God has arranged for the first book of the New Testament to be written by this sinner called Levi. Isn't that great? Isn't that just wonderful? It's not written by one of the holy ones, or one of the altogether ones. It's this rejected tax collector who didn't fit in with society. He wrote the first book of the New Testament. I think that's great. I just there's something that just I think it's a sense of humour from God, really. It's thought that once Levi started following Jesus, Jesus changed his name to Matthew. Written by a hated tax collector who was transformed by Jesus. I love the testimonies of changed lives. So who is invited to follow Jesus? You are. We are. I am. No one's disqualified by past history or even by your situation right now. Right now, whatever your situation, whatever the mess you're in, Jesus says, follow me. Follow me. You're not disqualified. Follow me. So we go on to the second point, the offense of the gospel. Follow me, he says, but this gospel he brings is offensive. It's offensive to all of us because Jesus will always confront us with the truth about ourselves. When the people in the Bible made the decision to follow Jesus, they knew full well that although they could come as they were, Jesus wouldn't allow them to stay as they were. He loved them too much for that. And you know what? He won't allow us to stay as we are either. He came to set us free rather than stay captivated by our sin and shame. The gospel says to everyone that we're not good enough to stand before a pure and holy God. We're not good enough. 
Imagine coming up and saying, hello, Sarish, do you know you are not good enough? That's offensive. Well, he's not. He's lovely, but he's not good enough. That, that's the gospel. It's offensive. It's like, being, it's like rude, isn't it? I mean, we want to go and somebody goes up and says, you're really great. You're really wonderful. No, he comes and says, follow me. By the way, you're not good enough. That's offensive. But that's the nature of the gospel. But let's be honest and face the truth. Is every motive of your heart and my heart pure? Are you perfect in heart? You got, you got it sorted? Every thought you've had this week been pure? Mm. Do you ever judge others? The Bible says don't do that. Do we ever do things, or have we ever, or do we still do things we're ashamed of? Hmm. Not good enough then. The first step in following Jesus is accepting the truth about ourselves. I love the prayer that I, I heard this years ago. I've, I've always found this to be very helpful. You come before God and say, God, I'm sorry, but I've sinned again. And I need to tell you that unless you change me, I'll sin again tomorrow. That's facing the truth about what we're like. The first step in following Jesus is accepting the truth about ourselves. That's not there to make us wallow in self-pity or beat ourselves up, but rather to, re to help us realize we need a saviour. We all need a saviour. None of us are good enough. John 3, 16 8-18 For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Hallelujah. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. To follow Jesus will require us facing the truth that we need saving and we cannot save ourselves. We cannot save ourselves. We can't come and say, well, you know, come and we'll help you get a bit better and a bit better. Doesn't matter how much better you get, you can't save yourself. You'll never be good enough to stand before a pure and holy God. That's the fact. We have all missed the mark of what life is really about. We all need rescuing. We're not good enough to stand before a holy, pure and perfect God. But Jesus came to stand in that place for us. Jesus is the only sinless, perfect one. He hit the mark. He's never missed the mark. He is the Son of God. He died in our place and after three days he rose again, defeating death itself. And so now we can be clothed in his righteousness, stand before God, not in our own merit, but on his merit. That's what it means to be a Christian. 
You might think, well, I'm not good enough to be a Christian. No, you never will be good enough to be a Christian. But I point you to Jesus. There was no other good enough to pay the price of sin. The old hymn says. He is the only one. And our confidence is in him. And I can stand before God in his perfection. That's the gospel. It's offensive and yet it's glorious. Now through Jesus we can have a real relationship with God as our Father. Being confident that death itself is defeated. And we can now know life to the full forever and beyond the grave. Wow, isn't that great? I think it's great. I get excited about this stuff. But the gospel is offensive in another way. The gospel is the greatest leveler there will ever be. The gospel, the apostle Paul says in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That word all is offensive. It would be better if he said, and some have sinned. We'd be okay with that, wouldn't we? Some have sinned. No, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What it means is, the word all means this, that apart from the work of Jesus on the cross, none of us are better than anyone else. That cuts right to the heart of us. We may not think it, but I promise you, we, we think so either well, at least I'm not like that. Yeah? Apart from God's grace, you would be. None of us are better than anyone else. The Archbishop of Canterbury, uh, Canterbury, Justin Welby, said this during his sermon at the christening of Prince George just this week. I think this is so courageous. The parents and godparents of Prince George have a simple task to make sure that he knows who Jesus is. Speak of him, read stories about him, introduce him to prayer, help Prince George grow to flourish into the person God has created and called him to be. Wow, I love it. I thought, wow, isn't that, isn't that great? To get to speak to the, the royalty. The people who've got it all together, maybe. Right? What's the greatest need for this potential future king? Make sure he knows who Jesus is. Because apart from Jesus, we're no different, we're all the same. I find at times a deep sadness in my heart when I, I drive through housing estates. It's a weird feeling. I find myself thinking about the people and the families behind each door. Because so many people live in their little boxes, locked away. And yeah, there's pain and suffering behind some of them, but for many, people are there thinking they have it all together. A good education, a good job, maybe very well paid with money in the bank, a nice car, and so on. The people who've done, who have done very well, thank you. They have very little felt need. Want to go on holiday? Book a holiday. Probably got a hollow feeling somewhere on the inside, but more, most of the time, they just go on saying, this is life, I have no need. I'm fine, thank you. They can always have what they want. And the TV and the Western mindset says, 
You've done well. You deserve all of those things. And there's that dreaded phrase, you are worth it. God. Just. I found myself grieving because I think such folk are the most lost of all. They're no better than anyone else. They too have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And they too will have to stand before God one day and they will have to answer the same question that we all will. What did you do with Jesus? You stand before God on judgment day and we all will individually have to give an account. The question will not be, what have you done? The question will be, what did you do with Jesus? I find I ache inside for those who have no idea how lost they are and just how much they need a saviour. And you know what? When you get an opportunity and you tell them the gospel, they get offended. Sometimes very offended. Matthew, Levi, this sinner, tells us about someone like that in his gospel. I'm going to read Matthew 16, 19, 16 to 22. It's a well-known story. But here's a guy who thought he had it all together. Behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. If you will enter life, keep the commandments. He said, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbors yourself. And the young man said to him, All these I have kept. <laughs> just fine. There's a degree of self just arrogance in that. I'm, I'm perfect, it's okay. Kept all of those. What, what do I, st- I lack? And Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Basically, Jesus was saying to him, there's nothing that you can do. There's nothing you can do to inherit this. There's nothing you can do to have this. You'll never be good enough. You need a saviour. That's the gospel. It's offensive, but it's glorious. really is. Next time, just have a think about your next door neighbours. They may drive you nuts, or they may be okay. Or the people who live in your street. Pray for it. Pray for your street. Pray for the people who live next door, across the road. Pray for them. Ask God. Say, God, these people need to know you. They may have it all together. They may live in a nice house. They may have their car. They may have everything. But their biggest need is to know Jesus. Pray for them. Maybe you have family who aren't Christians and and, and you think, oh, well, they're doing okay. Without Jesus, they're not doing okay. They're not doing okay. They're lost. Pray for them. I'm in touch a lot at the moment with my friend Graham. 
talked to him about him before, we've been friends since we were 19, both working for Hammond Organ Company, and he has a model railway I have, we're like brothers really. He left his wife, he lives with a lady called Jean, who's the same age as Jean, it's quite interesting, just moved house into the country. And he sent me this email, he says, the guy next door has a model railway, he's invited me to have a look at it. I thought, oh, that's good. His wife plays the piano at the local church, and she's coming to see Jean tomorrow. So I sent this email, I said, praise the Lord. <laughs> God's going to get you yet, is basically what I said. I've shared the gospel with my friend for, whew, since we were both 19, that's a long time ago. We're both 64. He doesn't know Jesus yet. That's his greatest need. But I'm praying. I'm praying. Pray for your friends who don't know Jesus. Breaking the mold. My last point. As I said earlier, the Jewish religion had in it regular times of doing certain religious duties. Regular animal sacrifices, very strict Sabbath keeping. Saturday was their Sabbath day, and on that day we were not allowed to do any physical work. You weren't allowed to buy or sell, and so forth. They had to pray a number of times each day, always had re- and ha- also had regular fasting days. And clearly this must have been one of those times when the law said there should be fasting, because John the Baptist's disciples were obviously fasting, as were the Pharisees. And so the question comes to Jesus, why aren't your disciples fasting? All these old people are, you know, the holy people, the, the religious people are fasting. Why aren't you? You, you. And Jesus' reply is very important. He compared his disciples to companions of a bridegroom. And he says, he, he himself, he says, I'm the bridegroom. As long he was, as he was with them, there's no reason for an outward demonstration of sorrow. But the days are coming, he said, when he would be taken away and then they'll have reason to fast. And then Jesus says something that's very pivotal in our understanding of the gospel and the Christian life. And I will talk about this next week as we go on to verse, carry on from here to verse 6 of chapter 3. He says this, No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and the worst tear is made. No one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins but new wine is for fresh wineskins. These two pictures are pretty clear. And I've often heard people say in church life that we need a new wineskin to cope with the new thing that God's doing. In fact, do you remember when Tony Smith came here three years ago? No. Some of you? He's talked about wine a great deal, I remember that day. So when, when Sam and I were prayed for to be elders, and Tony Smith seemed to spend all his time talking about wine in copious amounts. And he was basically saying we need a new wineskin using that picture. And I understand why we use the terminology, but I wonder if in doing so, we fail to catch the fullness of what Jesus is saying here. What are these two pictures? The first one is, I'm, I'm not into mending clothing. I used to be able to darn socks. When I was a boy, I used to be able to do embroidery. Nobody does darning anymore, do you? Patching a hole up with, no? I used to, be able to do that. I used to do embroidery. I used to do a bit of knitting for fun. I used to like, you know, because I like to do things with my hands. Don't do any of that anymore. Hallelujah. But apparently, if you if you get a hole in a piece of cloth that's an old old material, and you put a new piece of unwashed cloth 
into that hole very quickly when you rush it again the, 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 it will go differently and you'll all tear away around the old the old bit and just give way so I'm told don't, don't patch a hole up with something new but then Jesus goes on to the second one which I can cope with, with a bit more because wine in Jesus' day wasn't kept in bottles it was kept in wine skins animal skins probably pig skins and um, they were made into containers and the wine was placed in a new wine skin and continued to mature the wine stretching as the wine developed in flavour once used though you would never put brand new wine back into that used wine skin because if you did as the wine matured the pressures increased the wine skin would burst and the wine would be lost this is a crucial point for me because what Jesus is talking about is the old covenant and the new covenant while the law of God is good and right it's great he's saying it doesn't matter how hard you try though you will fail to keep it in some way because he failed to keep it in some way so there were animal sacrifices and ritual observance and Jesus said that was the old wineskin that was the old covenant that was my promises that's how it was do you remember I preached from Mark 1 14 to 20 talked about how when Jesus came back from being tempted to the devil he said this is it the moment has come talks about the kingdom of God is right here repent and believe the good news this was the moment all of history was pointing to and especially Jewish history and God was doing this new thing well this new thing needed a new wineskin Jesus the saviour of the world had come now instead of us striving to keep all of God's law Jesus would stand in our place keep it on our behalf all the rule keeping and the requirements of the law were being fulfilled in him and more than that there would be no need for animal sacrifices anymore isn't that good? aren't you pleased we don't have to kill a cow this morning yes. <laughs> mm, that'd be a mess you know it's bad enough having baptisms imagine killing a cow and someone have to clean that up that's just <coughs> but that's the sort of thing that went on all the time but that was an old wineskin it wasn't Jesus wasn't despising that he wasn't he's saying the new has come and we need a different mindset all the animal sacrifices had ever done would point the way to Jesus who was the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world Jesus is now confronting the legalistic framework of the religion of the day he, he wasn't despising the past he's honouring it but he's saying a new or a new wineskin is required from now on it's a wineskin based on grace and favour from God that comes to us it comes to us on the basis of what Jesus has done not in our deserving it not because I've done especially holy things or I've behaved in a special way we may think we're not legalistic and yet we're so religious well I need to say to us our religion counts for nothing before God in terms of earning our position sometimes it helps us in our walk but it doesn't help us at all in our position before God we come to Jesus and we say Lord I'm not good enough but you are can I put my trust in you please 
will you stand in that place for me? And he'll go, yeah, that's why I came. That's why I came. I came for you. I came for you. I came for you. I came for you. That's why I came. I came because you're not good enough, but I am, and I want to stand in that place for you forever. That's the gospel. Isn't that good? Isn't that worth telling people about? He came for your next door neighbour. He came for your work colleagues. He came for the king and the queen and everybody. He came for all who would put their trust in him and he wants to make the gospel known. Isn't that good news? That's what we're about. When we talk about transforming uh, Teesside with the gospel, what are we talking about? We're talking about people coming to know this saviour. We're talking about bringing the benefits and the blessings that come from our God into the now. That's what we're talking about. We're not talking about doing it being perfect. We're talking about relying on the one who is perfect. That's the gospel. I love it. And as we follow him, he draws us more and more to live in such a way that we find I want to please God. Don't live, I'm not trying to keep right rules and, 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 and tick the right box because, because I keep God happy. But I want to please God now because this is, I've got a new identity. I'm born again. I'm a child of God. And, and he's given me a life worth living. And as I learn to live it, so life has a, a meaning and a purpose and I become more effective. That's what I want. Praise God that he loves us so much that he sent his son. Don't you think it's good? I mean, isn't it worth shouting about? Is that why he sent his son for me? Wow! I, 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 you know, I just, just get excited about that. Praise God, he sent his son for you and for me. Thank you, Jesus, that you came. There are only two wineskins. We don't actually need new wineskins to hold what God's doing today. What God's doing today is what he started when Jesus came. It expresses itself in different ways, in different cultures, at different times, in all sorts of ways. The Salvation Army wore uniforms, played trombones and all the rest of it. I've been there, done that. It's not about that. You don't have to keep reshaping and reshaping. What you do is just get on with God and follow him and do what comes. It's about life and freedom and liberty. It's about being free from religious duty and form and living in a way that says, I'm living for God. I have a life to live. That, that I'm, I'm free to live it now. And, and this is the new wineskin. And the wineskin is there and it's flexible and it doesn't give. And it, I don't have to change it every few years because God's doing something new. That means I'm despising the old. No. I look back in my family history to um, uh, Auntie in, in, in Nigeria as a missionary for all of her life. Another one, Methodist deaconess in this country, serving God in their day, living in this same wineskin that we are. It's the wineskin of this, the new covenant. It's a covenant of grace. It's a covenant of blessing. It's a covenant of favor from God that's all found in Jesus. That's the wineskin. Freedom from law. Worth it. The old has gone and the new has come. And it's only found in Jesus. He's done it all. And today he'd say, have some more. Be filled again with the Holy Spirit. It's free. You don't have to earn this. It's free. Life with a capital L. So Jesus came, he broke the mold. 
completely broke the mold, the religious mold of the day, he opened up the world to the kingdom of God. Now I'm going to say more about this next Sunday, because it's crucial in our Christian walk. But as I was preparing this, I found my thinking, oh, I want to preach through Galatians and Romans again. Might not tick your box, but oh, it's just thinking, it's years since I preached all through Galatians, back to back. Romans, all of it. I've got 43 sermons somewhere on what I think. Oh, oh, because it's this stuff. And what happens is the old wineskin, the old way, keeps gnawing at the church and saying, you've got to become better. You ought to perform better. You've got to start doing this. You've got to start doing that. You've got to go to that meeting. You've got to do this. Not true. It was all accomplished at the cross. All I have to do is live in the good of it and enjoy walking with God every day, every day as he fills us with his spirit leads us in all sorts of ways different groups doing different things that's fine because we're free in him we're free in him isn't that a good gospel? Yes. let's stand up if the band would like to come back please I'm just going to pray for us.